today, as I mentioned, is a special Sunday. It's Reformation Sunday, and Noah's excited. I'm glad for that. Uh, and I, I wanted to take this moment to kind of use this special opportunity to look back into our history, uh, look back into who we are as Protestant churches and sort of do a historical preach. Uh, so it won't be too much history. I'm not going to be going through dates and names and places so much, but I want to tell the story of sort of how we got here. Uh, but I also do want to preach from God's Word, and I want to read to you uh, the passage that I'll be focusing on in Luke chapter 18. Uh, this is probably, I think this is, ooh, I think this is my favorite story in the Bible. Okay, I'm going to throw it out there. Um, other than the cross, uh, but I think this parable, this story that Jesus tells, gets to the heart of Christianity. And uh, so it would be my privilege to read it for us this afternoon and preach from it. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 through 14. This is the word of the Lord. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this is Jesus, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Would you pray with me? God of heaven, I pray and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word this afternoon for your glory alone. Amen. Well, 500 years ago, it would have been inconceivable that we would be here. Not just here in Australia, uh, obviously, you know, the First Nations people, they knew about this place, but no one else did at that point, but that we would be here in an Anglican church, a church connected to the Church of England from England, a church unconnected to the Church of Rome. Up until that point, there were two churches, the, the Western and the Eastern Church, the Roman Church and the Orthodox Church, but to have a Church of England unheard of. But not only that, that we would be in this Anglican church in another continent, but that we would be this random church, Sovereign Grace Church, an independent church, not connected to any major, you know, network, uh, although we are through Sovereign Grace churches globally, um, a charismatic church believing in the gifts for today, a Baptistic church that doesn't baptize babies, that only baptizes adults. But not only that was inconceivable, it was inconceivable that we would begin our service this afternoon with the public reading of Scripture, the public reading from the Bible in the language of the people. That just, that wasn't done. Not only that, we had a non-priest come up and pray prayers on behalf of everyone else. 
And now as I stand here, I'm about to, well, I've read a Bible text to you and explain it for 45 minutes in the common language. But not only the actions that we're doing, what we proclaim would have been unheard of 500 years ago. The song that we sang earlier, the the great Reformation song that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That was unheard of at that time. Those truths were only just starting to be comprehended in small circles amongst a very few number of people in Germany and even across in Switzerland. And not only what we are doing, but what is missing. No priests, no vestments, no relics, no saints, and no mass. Catholic churches at that time, front and center was an altar where every week, every service, they would re-crucify Christ transforming the body, the bread um, into the body of Christ and the wine into the blood of Christ to re-sacrifice him, to make atonement for the sins of the people. So how did we get here? How did we get to this place 500 years later? Well, that's our story for today on Reformation Sunday. And it's even better that this year, Reformation Sunday is actually a Sunday, so it's doubly special. You see, on the 31st of October... 1517, a German monk named Martin Luther, who was a lecturer at the University of Wittenberg, was outraged by the recent scandals of some traveling preachers like Johann Tetzel, who were basically going around selling tickets to heaven, uh, selling tickets to get people out of this intermediate place called purgatory uh, that the Catholic Church had invented. Oh, there, I need that. Thank you. See, that's a good pastoral intern, Richie. Come on. Mm. No, I'm going to kick that over. Thank you. Good. And, and he was going around preaching that if you gave money to the church to build these great things like St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, has anyone ever been there? Uh, that was built on the back of uh, the preaching like Johann Tetzel. And Martin Luther was outraged. Now, he hadn't understood all the tenets of the Reformation at this point, but he knew something was up. And so what he did was on one Sunday morning, he He wrote up these 95 theses, these 95 arguments against the common practice at the time. And not in an act of defiance, not in an act of revolution, he posted them effectively like he did a blog post. He put them on the castle church doors in Wittenberg and called people to debate him about this practice. Um, I'll read you the original words that he wrote at the top of this paper in German. Actually, no, sorry, he didn't write it in German, he wrote it in Latin. Uh, It was to the academic people, it wasn't to the lay people. So he wasn't starting a revolution, but this is what he said. Out of love and zeal for the truth and the desire to bring it to light, the following theses will be publicly discussed at Wittenberg under the chairmanship of the Reverend Father Martin Luther, Master of Arts and Sacred Theology, and regularly appointed lecturer on these subjects at that place. He requests that those who cannot be present to debate orally with us, or to debate orally with us, will do so by letter. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. So he calls for debate, and the first point he makes, the first of the 95 theses was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, with that first thesis, you know, that was actually quite remarkable at the time because without going into all the detail, he'd understood something that had been misunderstood for a thousand years about how do you become right with God. Uh, The idea at the time was that you made penance, you made it up to God 
But actually, that was a mistranslation of the Greek word metanoia, which meant you repent. You change your heart and mind about sin. And so for a thousand years, the church had been teaching, you've got to make it up to God. Do penance. Do these acts when actually you were meant to do repentance. Change your heart and mind. And so Luther puts this argument out there, never intended to bring about a revolution, Instead, his hope was to clean up the church. He wanted to sort of bathe the church and get rid of some of the things. And he thought that his 95 theses, the the Pope and and the scholars would agree with him, that these horrible preachers that were preaching all these things would, you know, be exposed and the church would be cleansed. But what ended up happening was a revolution did begin. Um, About 70 years prior, the printing press had been developed, and the printing press was then used to circulate Martin's 95 Theses, and it spread in the common language throughout all of Germany. And suddenly, these debates started happening. It was, you know, like a Twitter war. It went went viral, everything like that, as much as you could back in the 1500s. And people started to think, oh, here's this guy questioning the church. And then that led Martin Luther to go even deeper into studying what the Bible had to say. It was an accidental revolution. And in this series of events, what began was a seismic shift. What was covered in the darkness at that point was brought into light. Namely, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why it matters so much to us. Uh, The Reformation is not just interesting for history. It's not just interesting for scholarly debate. This is our very hope of eternity. This is our very hope that we could know and love Jesus Christ and be saved. And so what happened has eternal significance for all of us. This is our history. This is our hope. And so today, we're going to track our way through what is now called the five solas of the Reformation. These five solas, these alones, were the catch Christ summary of what was taught and held by the Reformers across Europe and now all over the world. Uh, The word sola is the Latin word for alone. And the emphasis in these catch cry is the aloneness, um, as opposed to what the Catholic Church was teaching, which was to have multiple things held together. And today, uh, the reason why I've got, and I mentioned this big fat Bible today, is that, uh, and we've got a photo on the screen. About uh, 15 years ago, I was helping a mate. Uh, He was an assistant minister at my Anglican church that I grew up in, and he was having a hard day. I went over and washed some dishes and things like that. And I walked out. As I was leaving, he said, hey, have this Bible. And it was a brand new ESV study Bible with all the tabs and everything on it. And when I, when I walked out, I realized that he inscribed this on the front. Uh, and, it, and it reads, these are the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Bible alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. And Soli De Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so I thought it'd be fitting to preach from this Bible where it's so beautifully inscribed on the front. And we're going to look at those five points in three points to make it simple or more confusing. Probably more confusing, actually, now that I think about it. Start number one. We're going to do some of them together, obviously. Point number one, the Bible alone. You see, as I said, at the heart of the Reformation was not scholarly debate, but private struggle. Because for Martin Luther, more than anything else, he was a tortured soul. For Luther, the burning desire to get to the truth was a burning desire to answer one fundamental question. Perhaps a question that has stirred in your soul and may have been answered by these truths before, or maybe it's fresh for you today. It was this, 
How do you know if you are right in God's sight? The burning desire that tormented Martin Luther as a monk was, how do you know if you are right in God's sight? How do you know for sure? How can you be certain or assured that you are right in God's sight? that you are righteous, that you will be accepted, that on the day that you meet God in heaven and he says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? How can you be for certain that you'll be let in? And for Martin Luther, that was a scary, scary question. Because for Martin Luther, he was one that truly actually understood who the God of the Bible was. That the God of the Bible wasn't an Aussie, He's like, yeah, she'll be right, mate. Yeah, come on in. I know you've, you know, you've, you've stuffed it up a few times, but we're all good. Come on, let's have a beer. The God of the Bible would, probably Jesus probably would have a beer with you, but the God of the Bible, as Luther saw, as he read and studied as a monk, was a holy and is a holy God who permits no evil and cannot exist with unrighteous people. And so for Luther, he was terrified of meeting God. He was terrified of God. He had no assurance, no confidence. Yet he was holier and more devout than any person in this room that I know. How would you answer that question? If you were to meet God today, and he said, why should I let you into my heaven? Why should I let you into the kingdom? How would you answer how do you know if you are right in God's sight? Now, for many of us, we know the answer. But we only know it because of the work that these reformers did for us 500 years ago. Men and women across Europe and all over the world. How can you be sure? You might have doubts or questions like, how can I be right with God if I'm such a half-hearted Christian? How can I be right with God? If I've had an abortion, how can I be right with God if I'm such a selfish person? How can I be right with God if I'm gay? How do you know for certain that you are right in God's sight? Well, this first point, the Bible alone, is the kind of formal principle of the Reformation. This is where everything started to change, where they started to look at that no part. How can you know? How do you have conviction or assurance? On Thursday, um, I woke up really quite sick and I thought, I, I better get a COVID test. Um, I don't really, I haven't had many of them. Uh, and I thought I should have a COVID test so that I know for sure that I don't have COVID because I had a sore throat so that I could be here on Sunday. So I went in, finally had the COVID test, but it took 24 hours for it to come through. Uh, and I was sort of, I, I didn't think I had COVID, uh, but when I got the test result back, I looked at the thing, and it was all split up over different lines, and the first thing I saw was COVID-19 test detected. I was like, oh, no! <laughs> but actually, it said not yet detected on a separate line. Uh, but I was, I was relieved to know for sure that it wasn't detected in me. Uh, and in some ways, what Martin Luther wanted to figure out was to know for sure that he could uh, be accepted into heaven. And so in order to figure that out, um, Martin Luther tried to, you know, go along with the whole Roman Catholic Church process at the time. Uh, he asked and basically said, how do you have conviction? How do you know? And they said, well, it depends. 
uh, the official teaching of the time was, it depends, have you been baptized? Uh, for baptism was like sort of the cleansing of your old uh, self, the sinful nature, kind of brings you into the church. Okay, he'd been baptized, good. Have you attended Mass this week? Have you been there for the sacrifice of Christ? Yes, he'd been there for multiple of them. Um, have you committed any sins this week? Oh, Martin Luther would say, yes, so many. I'm such a selfish person. I, I've got so many. And they say, okay, we'll go to confession and confess them. And he would be there sometimes for hours. And they got tired of his confessions because he would bring up everything. And then they would ask him, were you sincere in your confessions? And then that would lead him to a whole new level of like, I don't know. Was I really sincere or was I just afraid? He had no certainty. Then they would tell him to pay for his sins through penance. Do the rosaries, do these certain acts, say our father, all these sort of things that maybe some of you have grown up with. Then they would ask, have you committed any unforgivable sins? But then there's the question, even if you do all the right things and you stay clean, all the little sins that you don't even know, all the little acts of selfishness and rottenness and, and bad thoughts, what if you die without having those sins forgiven? What if the priest hasn't given you absolution over those sins? Well, the teaching of the time was that you actually have a debt to pay to God and that instead of going to hell, you won't go to hell because you're baptized, but what you'll do is you'll go to purgatory. And in purgatory, you'll have to pay off your sins for perhaps millions of years. And that terrified Martin Luther, the idea of being tormented by God to pay off his sins for what would feel like an eternity. And then, added to all that, the insulting reality that these preachers were saying, but if you made a cash donation today, you could halve your time in purgatory. Uh, the Pope has authorized it. And so for Martin Luther, this didn't work. This system didn't work. This gave him no assurance. In fact, it just led him deeper and deeper into depression and anxiety. He had no comfort or assurance. No matter how hard he tried, no matter how many special acts he did, he couldn't shake the feeling. And this is a feeling that we all should actually feel, this feeling of unworthiness before a holy God. If you've never felt that feeling, then you've missed something of what the Bible has to teach. He felt that feeling. Indeed, the very thought of God's righteousness and holiness was terrifying to him. Um, when he gave his first mass, he actually freezed up and had a panic attack because it was the first time he was ever to pray to God himself. He'd always prayed to the saints, to St. Anne and other saints, but never to God. And as he stood there to do this mass for the first time, he froze and couldn't do it as he was going to hold God, so to speak, in his hands, according to Catholic teaching. And so, to answer the question, he turned to the Bible. Now, that was a strange thing to do at the time. Monks, priests, turning to the Bible to find the answer. The, the, the church has told you the answer. Do all those things. God will be pleased with your good enough, was the basic answer of the church at the time. At the time, the Bible was only to be authoritatively interpreted by the Pope. It was hardly read in public at all in the church. And if it was read, it was read in Latin. And unless you're an academic scholar, you didn't know Latin, so you never heard the Bible. Imagine going your entire life, basically never hearing a word, a syllable in your language of the Word of God. When it was studied, it was studied only along with the commentaries in light of the official church teaching. And so for about a millennia, the Bible had been subsumed under the authority of the church and the Pope. 
and even in the past century, they'd imprisoned, exiled, and burned at the stake men like John Wycliffe and John Huss, who had tried to preach the Bible in the common language of the people. Then the Renaissance birthed. And these scholars and these men began to think, let's go back to the original sources. Everything they had was transcribed by monks into Latin. And so they thought, let's go back to the original sources. And they started to read Plato and Aristotle. And they started to read all these great works in the Greek language. And lo and behold, this Bible, the New Testament, is written in Greek. And so Erasmus translated the Bible from the Greek New Testament into a good version of the Latin. And Martin Luther started to study that Bible. And unbeknownst to Erasmus, who you know, wasn't seeking to be part of the Reformation, he unleashed the Word of God upon the people through Luther. He began to see, Luther was, that as he read through the Bible, that what the church was teaching was nowhere in the Scriptures. It didn't accord. In fact, it contradicted what the Bible had to say. He began to see this exhausting routine of rituals and practices of performance and relics and saints and working your way of salvation were a wicked human invention. And so that's why on that day, in October 31, 1517, what was just a seed form in his mind began the Reformation. A fundamental shift began to happen. And as he questioned the church, He was met with answer after answer, but he was never answered with the Bible. All the scholars and all the cardinals, they answered him with church tradition. They answered him with, this is what the Pope has said. This is what the councils have taught. And so it led to this ultimate authority clash. Who is the ultimate authority? Who has the ultimate authority? The Pope and the church or the Word of God? Luther argued, the Word of God. But the church argued, you would guess it, us, the church, we have the authority. And so in 1521, he was summoned to a meeting of all the political leaders. Uh, It was called a diet, uh, the Diet of Worms, uh, or Worms, if you've ever seen it written down in English. And all of his books, and he'd been writing a lot at this time, and he'd started to figure out these great doctrines that we'll get to in a minute. And he was demanded to recant all of his teachings. They didn't want to argue with him. They didn't want to debate with him. They didn't want to go toe-to-toe with him because they knew he would probably beat them in the debate. And so they laid out all of his works and said, are these yours? He said, yes. They said, recant, rebuke them, or we will excommunicate you and put you to death. Now, at that time, to be excommunicated from the church was to be sent to hell. That was the belief. If the church excommunicated you, it was a sentence from Pope, delineated from Peter, who has the keys of the kingdom of heaven, shutting the kingdom door on you. And Martin Luther was afraid of that moment. He, he took a moment and actually said, can I have 24 hours to consider? Even though he'd written so much and argued so much, so he took 24 hours and then returned the next day and famously said these words, unless I'm convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. He would not and could not recant. He could not rebuke his own teachings. Why? Because they were derived from the Bible. To rebuke his teachings would be to say the word of God was false and that the church was true. 
And in that time, that's when this sola scriptura catch cry was born. The scriptures alone have authority over the soul and over the life and over the church. The scriptures stand over the top of pastors, over preachers, over popes and over councils. It is the word of God that has authority over above every tradition, judging all tradition, judging all churches and denominations. It is the word of God. As 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says, the Apostle Paul wrote this two millennia ago, all scripture is breathed out by God, God breathed, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In short, what Scripture says, God says. What Scripture says, God says. Therefore, you can't recant it, you can't deny it without denying God. So he was accusing the church of denying God, of rebuking God, and he wouldn't have a bar of it. So they excommunicated him and sentenced him to death. And there's a great story that follows that, uh, which we can't get into today, but I can tell you another time. But this belief that Scripture stands over the top of tradition and over the church revolutionized the word. That Scripture governs who we are and how we are to live and how the church is meant to function, turn the world upside down. Because what began to happen is men and women all over Europe began to read the Bible for themselves and arrive at these truths that we know so well, that we take for granted. They started to see them for the very first time. They started to see that all these routines and rituals and performances, this exhausting way of life, all the money they were wasting giving to relics and saints and building projects were not required by the Word of God. And so, the Reformation was born out of this major principle, sola scriptura, the Bible alone. That was the, the formal principle of the, Refo uh, the Reformation. But it wasn't just all about structures. Uh, and academics and beliefs, changes our very lives and answers our deepest needs and burdens. And namely, it helps us with this fundamental question. How can I know for sure, for certain, that I am right in God's sight? And that leads us to point number two, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. So point number one, the Bible alone. Point number two, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. As the Roman system crumbled, the gospel began to rebuild a city, a city of hope and comfort in every street and avenue and corner for all who would trust in Christ. As Luther and many others studied and marinated in the Bible and submitted to it, they were led to a very happy discovery. Luther discovered and understood for the first time in his life the good news of the gospel. He discovered that you and I can be truly right in God's sight. We can be righteous, or to use the great Reformation term, the biblical term, justified in God's sight we can actually know that that is true for certain. They went on to preach and teach a sentence like this. Justification is by grace alone, 
through faith alone, because of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That word justification means right. To be right in God's sight is possible and knowable. And Jesus' parable that I read at the beginning of the Pharisee and the tax collector is quintessential for the Reformation. It pulses with the heartbeat of the Reformation. So let's look again just briefly now at that passage for today. And we're going to see the, the outworkings and the heart of the Reformation in it. Look what Jesus says in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So this story is delivered to anyone and anyone sitting here, anyone listening in, that's trusting in themselves, that thinks, I've got this. I can save myself. If I'm good enough, do enough, right enough, So he told this story to them. Verse 10, he sets up the classic good, good and evil. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisees were the religious uh, elite at the time. They were like the super Christians. They did everything right and righteous. Tax collectors, as you know, as you probably know, were the worst. Uh, They're still not really considered very highly today. Uh, No one likes the tax man. Well, it was the same back then, except they were even, excuse me, betraying their own people. So you've got the good guy, the Pharisee, according to their cultural standards, and the bad guy, the tax collector. Look at how the Pharisee prays. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I wonder if you've ever had those thoughts, like, am I good enough to go to heaven? Well, I've never murdered anyone. I'm not, you know, extorting anyone for money. Um, You know, I'm not an adulterer. I'm not unjust. I'm just a normal guy or gal just doing a job. That was his moral righteousness. And then secondly, verse 12, his religious observance. Look, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He was puffed up. He trusted. He, if you asked him, how do you know that you're right in God's sight? He would say, look, I did all those things. That was me. Of course I am. Then Jesus contrasts verse 13. But the tax collector, the evil one, the bad one, standing far off, like Martin Luther felt, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know, this tax collector, his heart, he beats with the Reformation. Notice his contrition and humility. Notice his uncertainty. He's certain enough to come to the temple. He knows he needs mercy, but he's humble enough to plead and say, I'm a sinner. I have nothing to offer you, Lord. Only sin. He's like a traitor before a king flung himself to the ground and pleaded that he be given what he did not deserve. Mercy. And that word he uses, have mercy on me, a sinner, is the, is the Greek word that's the root word for propitiation. That means to appease God's wrath. God is angry with sinners. That's what the Bible teaches. You can't get away from it. And so this tax collector humbles himself and says, don't have that anger for me. Have mercy. Don't pour out your anger. It's what Martin Luther was desperate for. He knew God was a holy and righteous God. He was terrified of him and he just wanted mercy, but he found no mercy in the ways of the Roman church, in the ways of you know, religious observance. 
He knew that through and through he was a sinner and he needed mercy. And so Jesus sets up the foil and basically to the crowd he's saying, which one do you think is right before God? And the crowd would, they would have thought the Pharisee. Uh, If you were back in the Roman church, they would have thought the Pharisee. But Jesus surprises everyone and says this, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He makes a surprising declaration that this man, the dirty, rotten sinner, the tax collector, went to his home justified. He went to his home right in God's sight. Righteous. But then even more surprising than a tax collector being sent home righteous, look at what else he says. Rather than the other. The Pharisee did not go home right in God's sight. The hero of the story is actually the villain. The one who was self-assured and confident of all that he'd done goes home empty-handed. He is not right in God's sight. So why does Jesus arrive at this conclusion? Well, this is the heartbeat of the Reformation. This is the heartbeat of Christianity. Everyone who humbles himself, who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The difference between these two men is not their outward acts of righteousness, but the inward disposition of their heart. The problem Jesus has with the Pharisee is not his moral acts of righteousness, but his misplaced trust. He trusted in himself. He looked inside himself and thought, yep, good enough. He was proud, arrogant, and deluded. But the tax collector, he he knew he had nothing to plead before God. And so he would have been right with the reformer saying, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. And although he didn't know it at the time, he would have added gladly in Christ alone. Because he went home justified because of his humble plea for mercy. You see, our salvation, the way we enter the kingdom of heaven, is not by our good works. As we know, it is by grace alone. Sola gratia. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The tax collector went home righteous. He didn't earn it. It wasn't his. He didn't deserve it. It was a gift. And that's why we sing so joyfully, because it's a gift. Salvation is a gift. We're saved by grace. We're saved through faith in Christ alone. The other text that Martin Luther worked through and arrived at that changed his whole entire conception was Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. You will not be right in God's sight by trying hard enough. The only way to be made and accounted righteous is to throw yourself at the mercy seat of Christ and say, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, Jesus told this parable before he'd gone to the cross. He actually told it on his way to the hill called Calvary. 
And what happened on the cross that makes it possible for tax collectors and, and you and I to be declared righteous is that the wrath of God that was meant to be poured out upon us, the terrifying wrath of God that Martin Luther expected to fall upon him, should have fallen upon him, deserved to fall upon him and us, fell upon Christ. It was poured out like a wave of wrath upon Christ on the cross. And in that moment, a great transfer took place. For anyone who looks to Christ and says, have mercy on me, God transfers our sin from us onto Christ, punishes it upon Him, and then transfers Christ's righteousness to us. And that is how we can be declared right in God's sight. Imagine you've never heard these words before. Imagine you've been told your whole life that you have to do good enough to be sure of your eternal salvation. And then you come across in your Bible 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let's, let's read 2 Corinthians 5.21. Imagine you've never heard these words before. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of of God. <laughs> this led Martin Luther from being a terrified and depressed monk to a crazy party animal. He loved life after this. He became so enraptured with joy because he was set free, set free from the tyranny of work, set free from condemnation, set free from the doom that was um, you know, uh, coming toward him. <laughs> and he saw that he was actually righteous. He could stand before God, not in proud humility, but with joyful confidence, humble confidence, because Christ had clothed him with his very own righteousness. So how can you be sure that you are right in God's sight? Well, the only way, according to the Bible, that you can be right in God's sight is to put your faith in Christ alone. It is by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. If you rely on anything else, it will not work. If you lean in on anything else, any background, any history, any work, you will not be saved because God humbles those who exalt themselves and trust in themselves and exalts those who humble themselves. I have a great quote from Martin Luther that I won't, I'm well out of time. I'll put it in the blog, you can read it later, but it's his happy discovery um, in his own words. But I agree with Dr. Michael Reeves, who taught me the Reformation at Pastors College, and he said this, this passage is a hammer of condemnation for the proud and an oasis of comfort for the weak and lowly. Friends, if you're unassured of your salvation, you can be sure today. If you doubt God's love for you, you can be assured of it today when you look to Christ and humble yourself and throw yourself upon him. So are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation? Every single one of us, I want you to ask this question in your heart. Do I trust in Christ alone for my salvation? If you're trusting in yourself, you'll notice these fruits. A sense of pride, a sense of, no, I'm not that bad. Perhaps contempt for others. Can't believe those types of people. You'll look down on others. 
You might even have a breezy confidence between you and God because you haven't yet understood just how sinful you are. It might be a fruit that you're actually trusting in yourself, that you don't think God would be that mad at you. Of course God accepts me. I've been going to church my whole life. The fruit of trusting in Christ alone is that you resonate deeply with the tax collector. You beat your breast, even now, post-salvation in Christ. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You pulse with that same heartbeat. You know you need it. And so you have humble joy. That's how you can tell if you're trusting in Christ alone. And anytime you start to wander away back to pharisaical ways, you'll know it because your joy will go, your confidence, your true confidence will go, your fear of God will go. And so Jesus is calling us today, be like that tax collector, humble yourself and go home justified. Beat your breast and cry out for mercy. So that was point two, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. I'm going to make point number three very, very short. To the glory of God alone. Point number three, to the glory of God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone. That was the last of the five solas. The, the one that permeates all of them. Uh, part of the, the heartbeat of the Reformation is actually the reclamation of God's glory. How Rome had covered the gospel, which is the glory of God. How Rome had covered up the beauty and the magnificence of Christ. The, the work of Christ upon the cross was covered. It was hidden. It was buried. It was covered over with all these crazy ideas, all these human efforts, all this disgusting filth that was marring the beauty of Jesus Christ. And so the reformers, this wasn't academic for them. This was the very point of the entire universe, the glory of God and the reclamation of it, that all the lands and all the peoples would know God for who he is in the face of Jesus Christ. Any system that leads us to trust in ourselves is sort of like if you're being saved by Superman and you try and help him as he does it. It's like, just, just lie back in his arms and he'll fly you around. He's invincible. He's Superman. Anytime you try and help yourself, you, you're trying to take the glory away. Like, I don't really need your help, Superman, Jesus. I just, I'll do it myself. Thank you all the same. Uh, the reformer's gospel is a gospel that says, you, you got nothing. But you go to him and he's the hero. And you get, to, you get to be caught up in his glory. At the end of Romans, Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul, after writing, if you read through Romans 1 through 11, if you've never done that, read it in one sitting. You'll be amazed at the incredible nature of the gospel. This is what the Apostle Paul says, summing up the entire message of the gospel. Romans 11, 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. So friends, we can know for certain that we are right in God's sight. We know it through the Bible alone. You can test everything I've, I've said today by reading through the Scriptures yourself and see if it's there. It teaches us that we are made right in God's sight by grace, through faith in Jesus 
Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So let the catch cry of the Reformation be our catch cry. Bible alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. May that be your story. May it always be the story of this church. And may we spread this story to all we come in contact with. Let us pray. Almighty God, the King of glory, we want to thank you that you recovered the gospel for us. That in your mercy, not only you sent your son, but you sent men, uh, you sent women to recover the gospel that we would know for certain that we are right in your sight. That we don't have to be anxious about the day we meet you. In fact, we get to look forward to it. We get to long for that day when we will see you face to face because we are clothed in your son's righteousness. Oh God, how can we thank you enough that we are justified in your son, Jesus, declared righteous. Help us to not trust in ourselves. Help us to not go back to our pharisaical ways. Help us to not go back to trusting in flesh. But let us be like the tax collector, beating our breasts, saying, be merciful to me, a sinner. And let us respond with humble and rapturous joy as a result. In Jesus' name, amen.